Let me just make an observation. And maybe you've seen this in your life or in the life of somebody close to you. Uh, Some of the dumbest things we do are a reaction to fear, aren't they? Anybody want to go, "Uh uh-huh? Yeah, some of the the dumbest things we do, actually. And I think there's, there's good reactions to fear, like when you're driving up Red Mountain Pass. Anybody been up Red Mountain Pass? And you're like... I think I'm going to keep both hands on the steering wheel and drive a little more slowly and a little more carefully as I go up, especially when you're going up. Down isn't so bad, but going up, right? And that's a good like, reaction to fear because it drops way off, right? Now, <clears throat> don't be like me, guys, because every time, every time we go up a mountain road like that at a Grand Mesa or something, I always say to my wife, you want me to get a little closer so you have a better view? And it works every time. It's like, no! <clears throat> so anyway, um, don't do that. But yeah, so that's like an okay reaction to fear, isn't it? I think I'll slow down, drive a little slower, right? Now, a not-so-good reaction to fear is an overcorrection on when you start to slip on ice or snow. Has anybody done that? Yeah? Isn't it crazy? I mean, before you know it, you're just like, oops, and you're spinning. It's like, how'd that happen? Because you, you overcorrected. You were afraid. You, saw, you, you, know, you felt yourself sliding and overcorrected. And actually, one of the best things my dad did for me when he taught me how to drive was he took me out in the school parking lot right down the road uh, in the snow when it was just snowy and icy to learn how, to, how your car handles and how to pull out of a slide and stuff. And so if you're here and you're from California uh, and this is your first year, <clears throat> I re- recommend you do that first for all of our sake, okay? So um, that would be a a good thing to do if you're moving here. Um, Another funny thing that we do that's a reaction to fear, and I don't know if you do this, but this isn't really like bad, it's just funny, right? Um, Have you noticed how you're outside at the campfire when you're camping, and there's noises out in the bushes, and it's kind of like a little scary, and then when you put out the campfire, it's really scary, and there's always like, you know, the last time you, you have to like go back into the bushes and then come out and you crawl into your tent and you zip the, the, the zipper and you go, ah, I'm safe. <laughs> Anybody else? I do that. I mean, and it's like, yeah, like that 0.1 micron tent fly is going to really help, right? It's going to really help against that grizzly bear. Um, or I don't know, maybe, you know, Walking down the entire world for eight months. No, let's not go there. Let's not go there. Oops. But or, or for me, like, it's just a, uh, like a true, I, I just want to give you like a true confession, okay? Um, I, I'm a man, and I, I consider myself a manly man. You know, I, I don't know. But, um, but still, when I am surprised by a mouse... I have a visceral reaction and shriek like a little girl. I'm not going to lie. Um, and, and it's totally irrational, right? It's, it's a little mouse. So Now, those things are light, and those things are kind of funny, right? But I bet you know someone in your life who the fear of being alone caused them to get into a relationship that, man, everyone else just knew was bad news, right? We have a friend like, I had a friend like that years and years ago, and it's just like, oh, no, don't do it. It's bad news. Sure enough, right? Um, the fear of 
missing an opportunity. Maybe you know someone, the fear of missing an opportunity led them to work so much that they did irreparable damage to their family. Maybe you know someone like that. Maybe that's a story somewhere in your family, right? Or the fear of missing out. FOMO. Anybody have FOMO here, our younger crowd? That means the fear of missing out for all those like over 35, okay? FOMO. (laughs) The fear of missing out led you, you or led someone in your life to just so obsessively live on social media that they're just now caught like in this constant cycle of anxiety and depression. And that's actually like statistically like one of the highest driving factors for mental health issues and suicide in teens is this FOMO, this, this constant like just living on social media and always seeing what other people are doing, right? And it's this fear-driven thing at the base of it, right? Now, the Bible has a lot to say about fear. Um, Proverbs says, the fear of God, so the reverence, the awe, the fear, a properly placed fear. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It also says the fear of man is a snare. So basically, choose wisely. If you want to know wisdom, it begins by having a proper fear and respect with, in relation to God. The fear of God, the respect, the awe, the reverence for God, taking God very, very seriously, right? Rather than contrasted to the fear of man, making all your decisions on what other people think, how other people view you, um, what you think other people are, are, are saying about you. That's the fear of man. And it says it's a trap. It's a snare. In fact, Jesus, one of, the, one of the things Jesus most talks about, one of the most common things he says is don't be afraid or fear not. That's a hard one, isn't it? But Jesus, that's a command from Jesus for his followers. And, and one of the points he drills down on, and this is so hard for us if we're honest, He says, don't be afraid of those that can only kill the body. You're like, really, Jesus? That's kind of scary. I'm kind of scared of that, you know? He says, no, don't be afraid of those that can only kill the body. You want to know who who you should fear or have a proper, who you should take very seriously? He says, fear the one who can destroy the body and the soul. Like, you want to put things in perspective, right? Right? Again, what does that go back to? Proverbs. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And so a proper fear, awe, reverence, taking seriously a respect for God should be something that motivates us to live rightly in relationship with him and to make better, wiser choices and decisions about life. Right? Could we all use a little more of that in our life? Probably. I think so. And so today, as we look at one of the the most famous, dumb, sinful things a people group does in the whole of human history, I want to draw out some of their motivations that I don't think we really think about. And I want to show us how I think that applies to our lives here 3,500 years later. So if you have your Bibles, you can start turning on over to, well, turn to Exodus 24. And then if you want to, like, you know, if you have a paper Bible, put a finger in Exodus 24 and also open up to Exodus 32 because we're only going to be in 24 for a second. Now, just to catch you up real quick, if you're joining us for the first time, God's rescued, redeemed his people from Egypt. 
and they're out Mount Sinai. And last week, it was this incredible scene where God had given them the Ten Commandments, the Book of the Covenant, which was the laws, the case law for how their society was going to be structured so that they would prosper, so that they would be a light to the nation, so that people would look at them and go, who's your God? Because, wow, just look at you. We want to serve your God. That was the commission of this nation. And so last week in this amazing passage, Exodus chapter 24, we saw the covenant of God ratified. Basically, they had this incredible ceremony and they had a celebration of God's presence. They offered offerings and the people all in like one voice said, we're in. Everything God has done, we're going to obey it. We're going to do it. We're going to do our best to understand it. We're in. And then the most amazing thing happens. The 70 elders go up and they actually see this like vision of, of somehow the tangible presence or manifestation of God with their eyeballs. They see this thing and it's just this incredible, incredible experience. And they eat and drink, which symbolizes the fellowship uh, with God. And it's amazing, amazing experience. Right after that, that's where we are. Right after that, Moses is called up the mountain where he's going to receive the two tablets from God, where the, the Ten Commandments are going to be written in God's very hand, right? He's going to receive the two tablets, and then he's going to receive the instructions over the next seven chapters for the, building the tabernacle. Now, we're going to fly over those seven chapters because I want to keep the narrative flow going, and we're going to come to them a couple of weeks later because later when they build it, then we're going to look at the first part too. But what you need to know is that whole section of seven chapters is really all about how it's going to look when God creates this place, when they build this place according to God's specifications. It's going to be a place where the presence of God comes in such a unique way and dwells right amongst them in their midst. Their God dwelling in their midst. And so it's this beautiful, amazing thing. And that's where we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 24. Now, let me just say, because right after this period they, comes this story of the golden calf. How many of you have heard of the golden calf before you came in here today? Yeah. You don't have to raise your hand, I know. Just about everybody, right? You're, you've heard about it. And if you grew up in Sunday school, you kind of know where the story's going today. Yeah, it's the story of the golden calf. And like, if you've been following the story, the amazing ways God's rescued and redeemed them, our tendency as people and as followers of Jesus and as people separated from this by 3,500 years is to go, idiot, bonehead people, what are they thinking, right? Like Moses goes up the mountain for a little while. They just promise God they're going to obey and not have, I mean, not have idols, right? And Moses leaves for a minute and boom, what a bunch of idiots. I would never do that. So, I, it's so good that I am so much more faithful and so much more patient than them. I mean, these losers. Right? That's kind of how you think about it if you grew up in church. If not, you're like, man, so judgy. Um, you'll see why in a minute, right? So here's where we're going to... I'm going I'm to dive in and pick up the story where we left it last week because it sets up where we're going this week. So Exodus chapter 24, verse 15 Right after this amazing ceremony, it says this, When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like consuming fire. 
on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Flash forward, flip forward to Exodus chapter 32, because this is the narrative flow, right? Seven chapters of tabernacle. And the next scene, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain. Now, see, you and I get all judgy, like, yeah, Moses has been gone like 30 seconds, and they're already rebelling and turning away from God. What a bunch of losers, right? 40 days and 40 nights. 40 days and 40 nights. Forty days and forty nights there up there. That's a long time, isn't it? I, I, I don't know, like if you tried to. I mean, most of your New Year's resolutions don't even last more than like fourteen days, right? Forty days and forty nights, dude's gone. And they didn't hear from him. Forty days. You, you notice he goes up into a consuming fire. Like, they're at the base of this mountain. God calls them up. Dude walks up, walks into the cloud, and it looks like a consuming fire. Like, we're talking picture volcano, right? Like, orange glow, 40 days, 40 nights. You're like, I am so glad I am so much more patient and faithful than these people. Yeah? Some of you are so good at waiting patiently that if you're seated at the restaurant table for, oh, let's say five minutes without getting served, you're like, I think they forgot us. I, I think, and, and you keep trying to catch the, the waitress, like, or the waiter's eye, you know, like passive aggressive. You're trying to like catch their eyeballs. And you're like twitching weirdly over here so that they see you. So you're like, they forgot us. And then finally, like three minutes go by and uh, <clears throat> they bring you your water and you're like, thank you. So patient, so patient. <clears throat> Some of you are married to someone that when you're 30 minutes late at a meeting and work, you know, and your phone was on silent, so you didn't hear it going off in your pocket, um, and they hear like an ambulance drive by 30 minutes, and they're freaking out. You have like six missed calls, six voicemails. Are you alive? Please. You know who you are out there. <clears throat> Patient, so patient we are when we're waiting on something, right? Some of you are so patient and rational that when your friend doesn't text you back or hit like on your Instagram story in like the first 10 minutes, you're thinking they hate me. They hate me. We hate waiting, don't we? When we're waiting, it doesn't take us very long to begin to react in irrational and unproductive and sometimes tragic ways, right? When we're waiting. I mean, come on, that's the truth. You know that. When you're waiting and you're afraid for something and you don't know if it's going to happen, it's pretty easy to start freaking out. And pretty soon you're just like all wound up inside, right? All right. So here's where it goes. Here's where they go. 40 days. Remember, not a hot minute. Like 40 days. 40 days. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, 
Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, that's the same expression they're using in the Hebrew um, as you use for that waiter that's five minutes late. They're like, fellow Moses left us, went into the cloud, 40 days, seriously. Um, As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. And you know what's going on here is groupthink, right? Because one of you at the restaurant table is always patient. You're like, oh, it's all right. I got to come. And then like, one of you is like, I think they forgot us. And pretty soon the whole table is like, I think they forgot us. And everybody's like amped up and angry, right? And, and you, know somebody, like, you know about like day 30, somebody down there. I mean, probably like day, day seven, right? Like, seriously, I mean, the first day, you're like, all right, he went up into the fire. Um, by day three, you're going, man, I hope he's all right up there in the fire. You know, like, by, by day 14, you're like, I don't know if the dude's coming back, right? By day 30, somebody's like, he's dead. <laughs> I had a dream last night. I saw him dead. He's dead. And pretty soon, you know, the word starts going, yeah, he's dead. You know he's dead. He's dead. He abandoned us. And pretty soon everybody's like, he's dead, right? That's where they're at. And so what do they do? They go up to Aaron. Lousy guy tricked us. Before you know it, the whole camp is in a panic. Intense, right? Because remember, Moses is their main connection point to God. And Moses has been gone for 40 days. To to an extent where where just like a couple chapters ago, um, a couple weeks ago, as, as we looked at it, when God comes to speak to them, they go, no, 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 Moses, you go talk to God. We're terrified, right? So Moses is their go-between. He's like really their only connection with this amazing God that took them out of Egypt and did all these powerful things. And so they're thinking, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? Moses is gone. He's dead. Let's take matters into our own hands. Let's take matters into their own hands. And so they They say, let's create a God to represent this God. Let's create some idols to go out before us because we need something that will be a connection point between us and God. And if you want to take notes, I've got five different observations for you in this text. Um, And the first one is this. Sin usually has a justifiable excuse. I don't know that about you, but if my observation in my life is usually have a good reason or at least a good-sounding reason, a reason you can justify to yourself for whatever sin you choose to walk in, right? Of course you have a good reason. Of course you have a justification. That's human nature. That's just what we do. That's what they do. They're like, dude is dead. we got to take matters into our own hands. And for us, it's like, hey, I know what God's Word says, but... But I'm scared I'm not going to be happy unless I stay in this dating relationship that I know I shouldn't pursue. But God wants me to be happier, right? That's like first suggestions for six, I think, but pretty sure it's in the Bible. Yeah, I'll have to look that one up. But God wants me to be happy. And so this, is, this has to be right. I know God wouldn't want me to do something that wouldn't make me happy. Or man, I don't feel respected at home, but at least she respects me. And that feels good. Eh, it's not going anywhere. 
It's just a text. It's just a Facebook message. It's, it's just a conversation in the hallway, right? It's not going anywhere. Or I'm afraid if I don't take this opportunity, I'll never have it again. I know that in this season, family should come first, but man, that's a lot of money. Right? There's a little phrase I learned in Youth of the Mission a long time ago, and it's stuck with me ever since. To justify is just a lie. To justify is just a lie. And whenever we allow fear of fill in the blank, what is the thing that you fear? Whenever we allow fear of something other than the fear of God to drive a decision that, that we know is contrary to God's word, man, we can talk ourselves into all sorts of things that we could never thought we could get there, right? It's usually the small decisions that we talk ourselves into that end up cascading into terrible Terrible regrets in our lives. Verse 2, Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. Remember, like when they left Egypt, they left with favor and the people just loaded them up with all this treasure. So they, they got the bling. They got lots of bling. I mean, they're like decked out. They're walking like Egyptians, right? dressing like Egyptians. That's an 80s song for those under 30 in the room. Apologize for that. It says, he took what they'd handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, Listen to this, like this is so shocking. And that's the point. The author, in the way this is written, the author wants to remind you how shocking and horrible this is. They said, these are your gods, Israel, who has brought you up out of Egypt. What? What? Now imagine first you're Aaron, right? Because they come to Aaron, and Aaron's the one that does this, which just blows your mind. Because if you remember last week, as Moses heads up the mountain, he's like, I'm going to leave Aaron in charge. My right-hand man. Anybody has a problem, you go to Aaron. Left in good hands, right? Forty days later, what are you doing? But man, you've been in a situation like that where you just feel the heat, you feel the pressure, everybody's mad at you, everybody's scared, you got to make a decision, and it's so tempting to just make people happy, isn't it? So he does. And, and, and now they build this thing, and then the, like the most awful words come out of their mouth. These are your gods, Israel, who you brought up out of Egypt, who brought you up out of Egypt. You realize, and, and this is why it's so significant, this is the way that the Ten Commandments start. The Ten Commandments start, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. You shall, what? Have no other gods before me. Don't make any graven image. Like, this is the beginning of the Ten Commandments. And it's so twisted. And, and, and like, when you think of Scripture, it's inspired by God. And part of that is it's inspired through human authors that are brilliant and writing in a way that to the people who they're writing to, this is like, whoa. And they get the weight of this. And so oftentimes we miss it because we're 3,500 years later, Right? And, and so this is just sh so shocking. And, and it's worded in this exact way to help you realize 
This is, this is awful. They make a calf, and a calf is a common idol image in the ancient Near East. A common image. Um, earrings had a pagan cult significance. The calf basically is a pagan representation of the true God. So they're building a pagan representation of who they think the true God is, something God specifically says, nuh-uh, right? In the top 10. In the top 10. And the point the author is trying to convey here is that it's hard to imagine something worse that they could have done. I mean, it's that bad. It's effectively rejecting God's deliverance of them as they put up these idols and say, these are the gods that brought us up out of Egypt. It's horrible. How did they get there? Verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. Again, this is a repeat of what happened in chapter 24. And this is what the, this is what the writer, what Moses is trying to emphasize here. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. That's exactly what they did in 24 last week, remember? They're having a religious festival. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink. They did that too, to symbolize this fellowship with God and got up to indulge in revelry. And here's what's happening here. They're basically taking what seems to them as like, oh, this is the right way to worship God. If you remember last week, let's do some offerings. Let's, let's have, us have a meal. And they're mixing it in with a whole bunch of pagan idolatry. And oh, this word for revelry, that's a, kind, that's a very, um, um, what do they call that? In, in English, it's, we don't understand in English. It's a very suggestive word in Hebrew. It's cultic sex practices every other time you find this, which is the, the behavior of all the nations surrounding this. Does anybody remember Ten Commandments, Cecil B. Mills, um, 1956? Classic old movie. I looked up the scene uh, today, and they're all just like going wild and crazy. You should go look it up. Like, go Google on YouTube. Go Google um, uh, Moses Breaks the Ten Commandments and watch this crazy scene of them. Uh, because that's what's happening here. It's this crazy orgy mixed in with what they think the, the true, like the right way to worship the one true God is. It's like Israel's launching their own false religion in the name of the true God. It would be like if, if I took a few weeks off and I came back And you all are like, let's have Heaven Fest. So you got a big old banner, like Heaven Fest up there, right? And you're playing worship songs, and there's like cage dancers everywhere. And I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, take that shocking scene and like multiply it, right? And here's the thing. If you had asked them, they probably would have told you, we are worshiping Yahweh, the one true God. Because the calf is somehow this representation and this idol that like connects us with, with Yahweh. Yeah, we are worshiping him. We are worshiping him. But here's what's happening. Under the guise of worshiping Yahweh, they were completely ignoring his commands about how to worship him. And God specifically, specifically forbids this kind of cultic practice. That's 
Go back and read the book of the covenant. That's what it, I mean, specifically. And here's the second thing to write down. Right intention does not equal right action. And this is such an important thing in our culture. You know, if you're, um, anybody ever sa- been sailing? One time I, I went sailing out on, um, up on the ocean, which is crazy, up in Alaska, in a little boat, big ocean. And you got to carefully watch where you're going if you get out in the open sea, right? Because just one or two degrees off can take you miles from where you're supposed to end up. Just a few degrees off. You know, sin equals missing the mark. That's what sin means. And we see that in the New Testament. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. It means missing the mark. Missing the mark. And here's, here's what happens so many times in our culture, so many times in, in people's hearts, even that, that love God or would say they love God. If you find yourself drifting into this kind of thinking that, man, I know what Scripture says about fill in the blank, but that just doesn't feel right to me now. God is love. Again, um, God wants me to be happy. I don't see how a God who loves me so much and wants me to be happy would ask me to do this. And so I'm going to do this thing that God clearly in his word says is wrong. And I'm going to just sort of brush it aside and feel good about myself because I can come and I can sing songs and I can kind of do the church thing. I can feel fine about where I'm at. I can do what I want while I pretend to worship God. Dangerous ground. Dangerous ground. Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commands. There's an indication of love. There's an indication of of our heart, of the state of our heart towards God, and that involves being obedient. It doesn't mean we're perfect. No, we stumble, we fall. But there should be an indi- there should be a direction in our life that's leading us towards following Him. Let me just say, without a seriousness about following God in your life, church is actually just a really lame hobby. I mean, really. I mean, we live in an amazing spot. There's all kinds of great things to do here, right? If you don't have a seriousness about following God, what church can turn into is just a way to make you feel better about yourself while you actually ignore following God how important this is, right? So, what we discover here is God won't play games. Verse 7, then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people, uh uh-oh, your people, if you're here at the beginning of the series, he's like, you are my people. (laughs) Your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. This is like, this is like when you know, (laughs) married people, you know this, right? Because Husband or wife calls from home, your children. <laughs> just that it's like, just wait till your father gets home, right? And so God's like, your people who you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Yes, I'm reading that in an angry tone of voice. That's the text. 
I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses. They are a stiff-necked people. Like if you're leading a horse and you can't go where you want, yeah, there are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Whoa. Whoa. I mean, here, <laughs> this is like, this is kind of wild. See, God is essentially like saying, let's, let's just flip back to Genesis chapter 12. I made a promise to Abraham. I can still fulfill that promise. I don't have to fulfill it through these losers. We can start with you, Moses. You're a faithful one. Let's just wipe them out. Start over. I'm still keeping my promises. They have sinned away the promises. You remember what God just said like a couple chapters ago in the narrative flow. If then, like if you do this, then. If you do this, then. Yes, you're going to be blessed. It's going to be awesome. If you don't do this, uh-uh. And then what did they say? We're ahead. We'll do it. Goosebumps. Yeah, that's what, that was last week, right? And remember what we said a couple weeks ago, when it comes to God's promises, God's promises are for his purposes. You get to participate in them. He allows you to. But they're for his purposes. And they can be sinned away. And the fullness of his promises can be sinned away. Verse 11, but Moses, this is awesome. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people? Your people, remember? Remember? Your people, you said it. Who, brought, who you brought out of Egypt with a great power and a mighty hand. Wasn't me. All I did was raise the stick up. You think I can split the sea? Uh-uh. Remember, God, this was you. Why should the Egyptians say it was this evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them. It will be their inheritance forever. Then, verse 14, Beautiful verse. Then the Lord relented, or literally turned, turned away. Similar word is used all throughout the scriptures for repent. What we're called to do, repent in our relationship with God, to turn away from a sinful lifestyle and turn to following him. It says the Lord turned the other way. He, he changed his mind, essentially, and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Now, there are so many mind-bending things in this passage here. Like, if you just stop and think about it, right? Like, wow, so God actually has emotions and, get, and can get really upset with things. I mean, that's clear, right? God has emotions. Um, and then, like, maybe you, you think, like, so I wonder if God is actually getting ready to nuke them and start over, because he's justified in doing that. He can still keep, like, they disobeyed what he said. He's justified He's, a, he's in about, about justice, and he's justified doing that, right? So I wonder if he's actually getting ready to do that or if he's just venting. Because in other passages of the Scripture, what we see is Moses is called a friend of God. How many of you have ever vented to a friend and said some things that probably were a little harsh, 
that you probably wouldn't have said to the other person, just a teeny weedy bit harsh. Yeah. It's just, so is God venting here to a friend? Moses, his friend? Um, it sure seems in this passage like God actually changes his mind, doesn't it? And it sure seems like Moses' prayer of intercession is what accomplishes that. Um, how about this? Did, did Moses just pray in accordance with God's will, like really reminding him of what's in his heart? I think there's a good argument for that, right? And it, 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 as interesting as all these different thoughts around this are, I don't think Moses, the author's intention here, isn't to go down some philosophical argument about the inner workings of God's psyche. It's not the point. As if we could comprehend the infinite God in that level. His point is to emphasize the effectiveness of Moses' prayer of intercession here. That allows God, um, God allows Moses through prayer to participate in saving these people. And that brings us to a really, really important point. And that's this, never give up on praying for those that seem far from God. Never give up on praying. James 5 says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Why is Moses, I mean, he's listed as a friend of God, as, one, as the greatest prophet all throughout the Torah, the greatest prophet to ever arise, you know, up until Jesus. And Moses is powerful and prays powerfully because he's righteous. He's not perfect, but he walks with God, right? It's interesting. You see this theme of of. Um, intercession all throughout the scriptures. Psalms says, Moses uh, says, so he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach or stood in the gap. It's a phrase you've heard, stand in the gap to refer for, to prayer and intercession. Um, later in the Old Testament, God talks about his justice and how his justice requires him to judge his people. In fact, it's kind of sobering. He says in Ezekiel, 22, that I looked for someone among them who would build the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the, behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it, but I found no one. That's like, whoa. Prayer is a mystery, but it's a powerful mystery. The famous preacher John Wesley says, God does nothing on earth save in answer to believing prayer that it's actually the means that God has chosen to accomplish so many things in this world. There's this amazing passage, famous passage in Chronicles. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and heal their land. If then, if then, and although that scripture is written to the people of Israel in the Old Testament, I believe that that principle applies to us today. That when God's people pray and repent and seek his face and do our best to align our lives with his ways, um, he will hear. And it will impact not just our lives, but the country, the nation, the city, the state we live in. It will make life better for everyone, right? Timothy, 1 Timothy says, pray for leaders and all those in authority. Pray for your nation. I hope you're praying for your nation, especially during this time, especially in an election year. 
And I hear people go, well, I don't know if praying for, for our nation is that important. You know, America's not in the end times. You don't see that. It's like, okay. But this country sure has had a powerful role in, in funding and, and seeing the Great Commission go out over the last couple hundred years around the world, seeing people hear about Jesus. This country's had an incredible role in that. It's had an incredible role in preserving freedom in this world. If you look at the last two world wars, right? And, and here's what I believe about our country. I believe we can, as a nation, become somewhat irrelevant in God's continuing kingdom, kingdom purposes in our world. Or, if we seek Him, we repent, we pursue Him with all our hearts, our nation can stay engaged and be an amazing, free, godly place to live that plays an incredible role in the continued spread of the gospel around the world to the ends of the earth. And that's where I would rather live, right? So I want to encourage you. Um, this is kind of a bunny trail and a side, but I want to encourage you to pray. I want to encourage you to vote. A guy named Edmund, Edmund Burke said this, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. See, Aaron didn't stand up. Those 70 elders last week that saw the image of God, we have no record of any of them standing up and going, time out, time out. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Such a powerful quote, which is why I think praying for others, praying for those in, in your circle of responsibility, stand, taking the chance to speak up and, and tell people about Jesus on a national level, praying for our nation, voting, taking it seriously. I mean, research the issues, research the platforms, pray and ask God, God, what is the right thing to do here? Don't make a choice from personalities. Choose from what's right. There's some heavy things on the ballot, some issues that aren't just political issues this year, that are moral issues. God says you're fearfully and wonderfully made from the womb. That's on the ballot this year. It's a moral issue. So I encourage you to be engaged in that way. In fact, if you want a resource, and you know, if you've been coming for any length of time, you know we basically never talk about politics here. We're not partisan. Um, but there's a great guide by the Family um, Research Council called iVoterGuide.com. iVoterGuide.com that really digs into platforms and individual candidates and helps kind of research what different people believe. And so I encourage you as followers of Jesus to pray, to pray, and to get involved. All right, verse 15. Moses turned. He went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. He brings that up. Like, these two tablets, are, these are the work of God himself. Verse 17, when Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there is, there is the sound of war in camp. And Moses replied, it's not the sound of victory. It's not the sound of defeat. It's the sound of singing I hear. Now, here's what's happening here is when mom has called dad and got your children and dad comes home. And he hears, like, 
teenager or a little kid mouthing off, and it's like, ah, right? That's the emotion here. Because it says this in verse 19. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. Moses always has a little problem with anger. You see that? It is. I mean, it's going to get him in trouble. It's got him in trouble in the past. It's going to get him in trouble. Now, he doesn't get in trouble here, but guess what he has to do? You, like a couple chapters later, God, the first ones, God actually gives him the tablets, like completed, written on. Second time, God's like, uh, Moses, why don't you go out and chisel yourself some stone tablets? I'll write on them. So Moses, I'm sure later, is going, duh. Right, okay. But actually, that's not just what's going on here. There's an incredible symbolism to this. You have broken the covenant beyond repair. You've broken it. And so he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on water, and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? What are you thinking, bro? Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us and as for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> I think it's funny, Moses doesn't, doesn't even answer him here. He's just like, you got to be kidding me, right? Verse 25, Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And the Levites, all the Levites rallied to him. You know, there's always a remnant. This is a theme all throughout the Old Testament. There's always a remnant of people who are faithful to serve God. Verse 27, then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Each man strap a sword on his side. Go back and forth throughout the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. Ooh, heavy. Now, we don't know if this is like just go out and the people that are involved in this revelry, this debauchery, wipe them out. Um, the, the grinding and drinking the, the thing, this is like another ceremony later in Numbers where somebody accused of adultery would, would drink a, like some ash. And if they lived, great. They were telling the truth. If they died, that was God's judgment. So maybe that's what's happening here. Because they go out, the Levites did as Moses commanded, about that day, and 3,000 of the people died. Out of a couple million people in the people group, 3,000 died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you are against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. Obeying God is, is the most important thing, deeper than the bond of family. And he looks at these Levites, and they'll play a significant role as a special tribe that God sets apart. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So apparently the the ones that were the instigators of this, that were involved in in the cultic practices, um, they were wiped out immediately. But there's still a collective guilt. There's still a bunch of people that just went along with it. Oh, maybe they didn't go along with all the debauchery. 
But they didn't stand up and go, stop. They didn't stand up and raise their voice, right? The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you've written. Man, Moses has changed. You remember when he argued with God in chapter 3, like, I don't want to go, I can't do it, and now he's really, he's taken on the mantle of caring and loving these people, right? Um, Verse 33, the Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. And I think this is interesting because I'm sure in this camp of a couple million people, there's a lot of people who didn't participate. They didn't worship. I'm guessing. But there's still consequences, and good people get caught up in the consequences of bad people's decisions. Or just simply, sinful decisions have consequences, and they don't usually just hurt the person doing it, right? I bet every one of you in the room has a story of a circumstance you've seen or you've been involved in that wasn't somebody's fault, but they suffered because of something someone else did that was sinful. And if you want to write this down as the first thing, is nothing escapes God. He knows the heart. Here's the point with the heavenly book reference blotting out of the book. That's another deep, long conversation. I don't have time to get to. Maybe we'll put it in life groups this week. But nothing escapes God. He sees. He knows everything. And he knows the heart. He knows those who have put their trust in him. Salvation has never been about working hard enough that you're perfect so that you earn it or just tip the scales in your favor. It's always about trusting in God, trusting Jesus. Chapter 33, verse 1, and this is where we're going to leave it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. At this point, the people just sigh with relief. Ah, God's not going to wipe us out. He's going to take us to the promised land. We're going to have his blessing. I will send an angel. Uh Uh-oh. This is heavy. You know why this is heavy? Chapter 23, just three weeks ago. I'm sending my angel. This manifestation of God's actual presence. Here, I'll send an angel. I'll send an angel. The people are like, what? Send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Parasites, Hivites. Ow, those people drive me crazy. If you missed the last talk, it's a joke, long story. You can go back and listen. Uh, And Jebusites. Three, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn. 
It is a tragic turn of events from last week's celebration of God's presence. And I just want, I wanted to leave it here where it's just super heavy. They've broken something they cannot fix and they know it. And so they begin to mourn. And God says, hey, I'll still bring you to the promised land. I'll send an angel. I'll bless you. I'll give you some goodies. But you're missing out on me. You're missing out on the joy of what my presence was supposed to bring you. And the last thing, if you want to write it down, is this. That sin separates us from the joy of God's presence. Sin separates us from the joy of God's presence. If you're in a lifestyle of sin and, and you know, you've truly followed Jesus, hey, you're still in the family, but something is broken. Something is broken. You may still get some blessings. You get the goodies, but it's empty. Because you missed out on the most important part. It's like you had uh, on the most amazing reservation for you know, like the most amazing anniversary dinner. Steak, wine, at least that's what I'd choose, you know. I don't know about you, vegetarians or something, you know, so. Amazing. And then, like, it's like, hey, honey, why don't you just go without me? What? That's the whole point. Yeah, yeah, you go, go, go have your good meal. I'll still pay for it. Wow. It's heartbreaking. And you can live your Christian life like this, but it's empty and it's joyless. And the irony here is when you take matters into your own hands and decide to twist what God says or live in sin or live in rebellion, it's often because of the subtle idea that God is keeping you from happiness in your life. It's the oldest deception in the book that God is holding out on us. But true joy is found in right relationship with him. Sin just puts a wedge between us and God. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. And the way to experience that life is to walk with him, to live a life connected to him, a life of obedience, to say yes to him. So as we close, I just want to invite you to stand right now. And I know this is a long chapter, a lot of text kept you a little long tonight. I just want to ask you, as we read through that and we have different things, usually what happens is God just sparks or prompts something on your heart. You're like, oh, that's it. The take home today, what is God sparking in your heart, your life? Maybe it's prayer, prayerlessness. You love him, you served him, but you just haven't been praying. And not just to connect with him. That's awesome. Pray to connect with him. But you haven't been using the powerful influence of prayer to pray for those in your life. Maybe you have a fear that's causing you to justify something right now. And you need to confess, God, I'm doing this because I'm really scared and I need to trust you more in this area. Maybe you're using a good intention to justify a totally wrong action. God, you know I love you. But maybe there's something that's keeping you from experiencing the joy of his presence and you know exactly what that is. For some, maybe it's just giving your life to him in the first place. It's saying okay 
to God. And so wherever you're at with the Lord, whether you're here in the room or online here joining us, I just want to encourage you as we pray that if you haven't given your life to him yet, that's your first step. For everybody else, would you say okay to God, yes to God, to the thing he's prompting in your life? Let me just pray for you. Father, thank you so much for my friends. And Lord, I ask that you would move on their hearts, move on their lives. And Lord, we covered a lot of ground tonight, but I pray that you would bring to their heart and mind exactly the step you are asking them to take and give them the courage to take it. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.